Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Well, Jim, Thanksgiving's coming up, big family gatherings, and different opinions about life. So how do we speak with someone at the dinner table who sees the world very differently than you do? Very carefully would be my advice. (laughs) Let's take the example of climate change. You know, you might think it's an emergency or a doomsday scenario on the horizon. You might have others in your family who don't think it's a big deal at all. Today, we're going to have a constructive look at how to think about it and how to talk about it. Climate change, moving the needle towards solutions with Catherine Hayhoe. If we want to change the system, the most important thing that any of us can do is to use our voice to influence others. Wherever we are, we have a shadow, not just a footprint. And our shadow can influence people to do things themselves too. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? As we record this episode, we're right in the middle of COP26, the global climate summit with world leaders meeting in Scotland to discuss what to do about our changing climate and how to cut carbon emissions. The stakes rose with the release of a new UN report which warns that the world is on track for catastrophic heating with the projected rise of at least 5 degrees Fahrenheit this century in average global temperatures compared with pre-industrial levels unless we do something. A lot of people kind of throw up their hands and assume there's nothing we can do to tackle climate challenges. But our guest today begs to differ. She's climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, who's a Christian and lives in Texas and knows all about speaking of climate change with skeptics. Catherine Hayhoe's new book is called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. She joins us from Lubbock, Texas. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. So I guess we should just ask you straight off, what is the case for hope? Well, that is the number one question that I, as a climate scientist, have been asked by almost anyone you can think of, whether I'm speaking to somebody in the business world, at a university, at a community group, at a faith-based organization, Everybody over the last five years has wanted to know, where do you find hope? So that is why I wrote the book, because so often we look for hope in the wrong places. We look for hope in a specific policy or a politician or piece of legislation that when they don't live up to our expectations, leaves us more disappointed than we were in the beginning. Sometimes we keep hoping that science or technology will just, you know, magically fix it for us overnight. But there truly is hope because, first of all, the science shows us that every action matters and every choice matters and our future is literally in our hands. But what else gives us hope is recognizing that the giant boulder of climate action 
is not sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep cliff with only a few hands on it, and it's not even moving an inch. And if we add our hand, it won't make any difference. No, that boulder is already at the top of the hill. It is already rolling down the hill in the right direction. When we start looking around at all of the cities and companies and organizations and individual people and governments and all kinds of people who have their hands on that boulder, there's millions of hands on it. And if we add our hand, it will go a little bit faster. What you're saying, Catherine, is that we individually, we need to talk about this. We need to raise this, which is a good Thanksgiving message. Oh, it totally fits with Thanksgiving. Yes. We need to raise it, but not by dumping more doom-filled facts on people, but rather by talking about the two most central issues, which is number one, why does it matter to us here and now in ways that are directly relevant? And number two, What do real solutions look like that are already being implemented today and that we might have a hand in implementing ourselves tomorrow? One thing that we often see in discussions of climate is an attempt to kind of wake people up or shock people into taking it seriously by by stressing the role of climate, say, in, in wildfires or hurricanes. Do you ever worry that at a certain point, If we make it sound hopeless, people just throw up their hands. Oh, I don't worry about it. That's already happened. When you look at polling data, 70% of people in the United States are already worried about climate change, but 50% feel helpless and hopeless and don't know where to start. And so what do we do with that? The real problem is not the number of people who think it isn't real or who aren't worried. Now, of course, there are some people like that, and I talk about them in the book, the dismissives, the seven percenters who are just convinced it's a hoax and want to talk about it with everybody anywhere. I run into them every day on social media, but they're only 7%. The vast majority of us are already worried, but again, we don't understand why it matters to us here and now. We feel like we have other priorities, just trying to survive COVID and keep our jobs and feed our families, and we don't know what it is that we can do to help. And so if someone tells us there's this big, big problem that could end civilization as we know it, but there's nothing we can do about it right now, our human defense mechanism, the way our psychology is built, we just we just shove it to the back of our mind. We just sort of metaphorically go back to bed and pull the blankets up over our head if there's nothing we can do. So that's why it's so important to talk about what can be done that we could get involved with, that we could put our hands on that boulder and get it going even faster down the hill. Catherine, you live in Texas, uh, which is famous for oil and and its conservative politics. You have a great story about what happened when you spoke at a luncheon in West Texas uh, to a meeting of Rotarians. And for people who don't know, Rotarians are usually business owners and professional leaders. What happened? So I believe that constructive conversations begin with something we have in common rather than something we disagree on. So I was invited to speak to our local Rotary Club, and I am not a Rotarian. So I thought about it, and I figured, well, the best thing that I could do is I could start with where we live, talk about all of the crazy award-winning certified weather that we have in Lubbock, Texas, talk about how it affects our lives, and then talk about how climate change is loading the weather dice against us, making our drought stronger and our heat waves more intense. So that's what I decided to start with. But I walked into that hotel lobby and I was greeted by this four foot banner 
that has the Rotarian's four-way test on it. And I started to read their questions. The first question was, is it the truth? And I thought, yes, climate change is the truth. And then the second question was, is it fair? When I found out that climate change is profoundly unfair, that is what convinced me to become a climate scientist and dedicate my life to this issue. And then the other questions, you know, is it beneficial? Would it build goodwill and better friendships? Well, that's what climate solutions are all about. So I skipped the buffet lunch and I perched myself on a little you know, corner of the ballroom and I rearranged my whole presentation into the four-way test. And I gave the four-way test to this group of Rotarians. And when I began, I could tell that I was not necessarily a popular guest. There were quite a few folded arms and people sort of leaning back in their chairs and maybe even giving the woman who invited me a bit of side eye, like we know what you did. <laughs> but as I started to go through the four-way test, I could see those arms unfolding. I could see those bodies leaning forward. I could see those heads starting to nod almost involuntarily because they recognized their values. And I was speaking to them and respecting them too. I respect those, those questions enormously. I think they're great questions we should all ask. And so at the end, I will never forget, a local bank owner came up to me who I had met a few times before, and he had always been cordial but distant. He came up to me with the most bemused look on his face I'd ever seen. And he said, I never thought too much of that whole global warming thing, which is the polite Texas way of saying I thought it was a load of crap, but it passed the four-way test. In other words, what can I do? That's my value system. It passed my value system, so I have to agree. And I thought to myself, that right there is the power of a positive conversation that begins where someone is, that honors and respects their values, their ethics, their morals, and shows them that who they already are is the perfect person to care. Catherine, I looked up your academic work on Google Scholar, uh, and it just goes on for pages and pages, the articles you've published about different global warming impacts in California and the Northeast, a whole host of peer-reviewed papers in scientific journals. You know, if we toggle over to YouTube and look you up, there you are sitting next to Leonardo DiCaprio and Barack Obama at a conference and on Jimmy Kimmel's show. And you spend a lot of time writing books like this for the general public or talking on podcasts like ours. How do you balance those two sides of your work? Mm -hmm. Well, for a long time, unfortunately, in academia, I had to double down and do twice as much work, twice as many papers, twice as many funding grants as the average colleague because my outreach was seen as a detriment rather than a positive. So that's the environment I come from. But I am a scientist too, and science is why I do what I do. But the reason that I do my science is because it is needed to make decisions for the world. It's like you're a physician studying a disease that everybody in the world has or will have shortly, like COVID, and you're the one looking at the outcomes of what's going to happen depending on the choices that people make. How can you not tell people about what's happening? And so just as we see medical health professionals making TikTok videos and on social media and on YouTube explaining to people why we need to get the vaccine and why masking and social distancing works, in the same way, that's what motivates me as a climate scientist, because what's at stake here is not the planet. The planet will survive long after we are gone. 
it is literally us, us humans, our civilization and some other living things, we are the ones most at risk. And so that is why I continue to speak out. And that is why I keep doing the science, but I do YouTube videos and I do Instagram posts. And I just wrote this book too. The fact that some people might discourage you from doing those uh, videos, TED Talks uh, and other appearances, is that a big reason why this whole issue has been framed so poorly by many scientists? Mm. Well, there's a couple of different reasons. And the first reason that was um, especially more salient back, you know, 10, 20 years ago was that for many academics, outreach was not seen as a valued part of their effort and their contribution. I'm very thankful to say that that is starting to change in academia. But there's another side to the coin, and that is the actually malicious attacks that we receive. They come from people who are absolutely convinced that climate solutions will destroy everything they hold dear. And so they lash out in fear and anger at anyone who says, hey, it is real and we have to fix it. Is that how this issue became so politicized? I mean, today we're living at a time when we find that some of the most surprising things like a vaccine that might save your life all of a sudden become freighted with all kinds of political conflict. The debate over global warming was sort of a, uh, a precursor of that, wasn't it? It was, and it itself is a symptom of our increasing polarization. The science didn't change. We've known about the science since the 1800s. What changed was this. Between the late 1990s and now is when we started to see that the impacts of climate change were no longer distant and far off. They are here and they are now, and that means that action is required. That's when it became polarized. Why? Because unfortunately, two-thirds of all the carbon emissions that have been produced since the dawn of the industrial era were produced by 90 corporations. And it is in many of their best interests and their quarterly, the interest of their quarterly returns to keep us using fossil fuels as long as possible. So they decided, not all, but some decided, it's cheaper to invest in muddying the waters in hiring the merchants of doubt that were recently let go by the tobacco companies who are looking for a new job. Let's hire them to sow doubt into the public mind. Let's talk to the politicians and see if they wouldn't mind just sort of putting the brakes on this whole climate action thing. And we just saw that in spades recently when there was a hearing on the Hill with top oil executives and fossil fuel industry groups where they basically just denied that they had done this, even though there is documented proof that they knew about the science of climate change decades ago, and they deliberately decided to deceive and mislead the public. We usually think of this issue as being polarized along, basically along party lines. There's a lot of truth to that. But just before we started recording, you and I were talking about a real wind of change going through a, a lot of Republican leaders who have been willing to come to the table on this issue. There's a there's a climate uh, leadership caucus in the Senate that includes a lot of Republicans. There's a big group of all Republicans in the House. So something has changed. W what's going on? Well, that's been around for about five or six years already. And it certainly is a source of hope that we have some Republicans who are willing to come out of the closet, so to speak, because this is a serious reputational issue for them and say, yes, this is real and we need solutions. And I mean, look at carbon pricing. 
carbon pricing is actually a free market mechanism. Even some of the oil and gas companies support it. But unfortunately, we have reached a point in the history of the United States where, according to Pew Research, we are more politically polarized than any time in our lifetimes. We don't focus on what we can gain together. We focus on how we can make each other lose. And if that's our focus, you know what? We are all going to lose. Our guest is climate scientist Catherine Aho. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We got on the topic of, of carbon pricing a minute ago. Let, I'd love you to walk us through why carbon pricing is such an effective and an efficient way to bring down carbon emissions. Then maybe later we can get into what individual people can do. One of the biggest problems we have is that in our economy, we don't put a value on all of the resources that go into it or all the pollution that comes out of it. But all that pollution certainly carries a hefty price tag. If you look at all of the billion-dollar weather and climate disasters that occur around the United States, back in the 1980s, we had, on average, one of those events every three months. Today, we have one every two and a half weeks. I mean, climate change is already costing us a bundle, and if we keep on going, we're looking at damages so large that we can't even put numbers on them by the end of the century. But... Not only are we not putting those costs into our economy so we can actually make decisions based on the real cost, we are subsidizing fossil fuels, subsidizing the heck out of them. Not to mention the fact that burning fossil fuels produces regular old air pollution that is responsible for almost 9 million deaths a year, which is double that of COVID except every single year. So how do we fix that? It would be nice if we could wave a magic wand and just yank all the subsidies off fossil fuels. But some of those are built into tax code provisions going back to the 1800s. So what smart economists say is, let's just do this. Put a price on carbon. You want to burn it? You can burn it. But you need to pay the real cost, which is fair, right? I mean, if you dump a bunch of garbage in your neighbor's yard, you have to pay for the cleanup. It's the same policy, same premise. So this is a free market mechanism where you tax carbon that's emitted by polluters and reward companies and others for reducing or eliminating their carbon use. Well, it will make some things less expensive and some things more expensive. So if you have a a much more efficient vehicle or if you have a hybrid or a plug-in or electric vehicle, you're going to be saving money compared to the person who drives a giant gas guzzler. If you are flying um, electric planes or if you are flying um, planes powered by biofuel, which can be low carbon or even carbon neutral, and you might say, but isn't that something of the future? No. United Airlines has been flying biofuel flights out of the LA airport for five years already. So if you're flying one of those flights, those flights are going to be all of a sudden much more affordable compared to the other kind. And it will incentivize more airlines to start moving in that direction. In terms of food, Some foods would be much more affordable and other foods, especially red meat, would be a lot more expensive. People in low-income households spend most of their money on essentials. And with this, gas and heating may be a lot more expensive. So what should we do? You refund to lower- and middle-income homes on an annual basis. You refund a sum that equals or even exceeds 
the added cost for their average lifestyle. And then if they make choices to reduce their carbon emissions, they save money and make out like a bandit. And if they decide that they don't want to reduce their carbon emissions, they break even. But what it does is it sends a market signal to all of the big producers because it increases the demand for the low carbon products and decreases demand for the high carbon products. Does that lead to more innovation? It completely spurs innovation because you innovate, you can create things that will be a lot cheaper that could outcompete the old standards that have been used for 10, 20, 30 years. And so it absolutely spurs innovation, technological investment, creates all kinds of jobs. And then efficiency. I mean, we often neglect efficiency. It just seems very old fashioned, right? Turn off the lights, insulate your windows. Well, through efficiency alone, we could save money and cut our carbon emissions in half. And with the price on carbon, it would spur a lot of retrofitting businesses. Investing in efficiency programs creates three times more local jobs than continuing to provide the fossil fuel energy that's needed for uninsulated buildings. And how about on a personal level? I know you've talked a little bit about changes that you've made in your own life. Mm-hmm. What are some things, maybe not, not just the obvious things that people can do? So each of us has a role to play. So, so often we focus almost entirely on our personal carbon footprint. We change our light bulbs, we reduce our food waste, we hang up our clothes to dry, we turn out the lights. But if we want to change the system, the most important thing that any of us can do is to use our voice to influence others. Wherever we are, we have a shadow, not just a footprint. And our shadow can influence people to do things themselves too. An organization that you're part of is is Christianity, is the, mm-hmm. the, the community of believers. What do you say to, to fellow Christians about the message in the Bible for being better stewards of our planet? Mm-hmm. Well, for people who take their faith seriously, that's a great point of discussion because we can begin with what we have in common. And so for Christians, it's not only about stewardship or care of creation. People often think that Genesis 1, when it talks about how um, God created humans to have responsibility over every living thing, we often think of living things as plants and animals full stop. But living things also includes humans. And so when we sort of broaden our horizons, we realize that caring about climate change truly is an expression of love for our sisters and our brothers, for those who are less fortunate than us right here at home, as well as on the other side of the world. And of course, an expression of love for this incredible planet and the nature that surrounds us, all the living things here on this planet that we depend on for our own lives too. We cannot float around in outer space without the resources this planet provides. The planet does not need us. We are the ones who need the planet. Thank you, Catherine Hayhoe. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Catherine Hayhoe, coming next, our recommendation. This week, it's from you, Jim. Well, you mentioned Thanksgiving. And I had a dinner party uh, at my house the, the other night that had a little bit of a Thanksgiving feel where people were venturing different political ideas and stuff. And I've learned over the years to like try not to be too much of my usual contrarian troublemaking self. But one thing I'm struck by is I often hear people characterizing the positions of conservatives strictly via 
things they've heard from liberal media uh, summarizing the views of those people. And I, and as you and I have often said on this podcast, it's always good to go to the source. That's um, why we're advocates of, of groups like all sides that give you different perspectives in, in the daily news and heterodox Academy, which encourages diversity in, um, in academia. So I think in our personal media consumption, it's good to have a little bit, a little bit of diversity. I mean, I read mother Jones, which is a very left leaning publication, but I think a good one that is honest with facts. And I'm going to recommend a podcast today that for, our liberal listeners, if they want to get an idea of how conservatives, and I mean pretty conservative uh, people, if they want if they want to get an idea how they think without it being summarized or distorted by their left wing critics, I would recommend the National Review podcast. National Review is the conservative magazine started by William Buckley back in I guess the early '60s, and it remains a voice for a kind of mainstream libertarian-ish conservatism, but it also has a social conservative streak in, in, in as well. And they have a diversity of voices. They're very smart. They can be funny. And you'll get a, a take on how people who are part of the non-Trumpy right, but are still quite conservative, they're not mushy conservatives, uh, how they view the world and how they view issues. And you might find it illuminating. That's a great recommendation. Thanks, Jim. Catherine Hayhoe knows of what she speaks. She is not only a, a climate scientist, but also is surrounded by and, and knows how to speak with people who fundamentally disagree with her. And uh, I think it's powerful to listen to those kinds of stories, to hear from people who know and often love those who uh, have a very different view of the world than them. And I love the way that she is able to draw on her Christian background to, to really encourage a kind of open-hearted communication. And I'm right now, I'm actually just wrapping up an article about the increasing acceptance of the problem of climate change among conservatives. And, you know, they're often characterized as, as being universally climate deniers, but polls show increasing awareness of climate, increasing um, belief that, that we need to do uh, some things to deal with it. And so I, I think that part of our challenge here isn't just to have better communication, but also to recognize that different people might have different ideas about the right policy. I, I have a feeling that a lot of what has pushed some conservatives away from wanting to grapple with climate change is what they see as sort of a, of a hysterical reaction to it that says the only solution is a uh, to dismantle the capitalist economy, for example. The concern I have, because I do read conservative editorials is a kind of poo-pooing of the crisis of climate change. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's editorials are often guilty of this. Uh, there's a recent uh, editorial from the New York Post, which is also right-leaning publication, and they talk about Glasgow idiocy, uh, saying that climate change isn't remotely 
the world's number one problem. Um, I'm perfectly willing to have a debate about climate change among people who take it seriously. There's no question that the way that this issue is framed is often too much in terms of what government can do and not enough in terms of what the marketplace can do. But I do think that we need to get off this snarky talk about how anyone, any government leader that raises climate change as, a, as an emergency, as a very serious problem, is, is uh, made fun of. Yeah, I know the snarky thing is something that really rubs you the wrong way. And, and I agree with there's a lot of that kind of, of, of dialogue on the right. And um, one of the reasons I'm writing this article about conservatives embracing uh, climate change is I was surprised actually to find out how many leading conservatives are now coming out in favor of they're uh, in favor of certain policies. Now you might say some of those policies are just window dressing. You might say that they won't be as effective as other policies that you might advocate. Those are really good debates to have. There's more middle ground here than a lot of people think if we do a better job and yes, maybe uh, a little less snarkiness from conservatives towards um the liberal views on this would would help uh, clear the air a little bit. One final thing is what Catherine Hayhoe is saying. If we want to make a difference on climate change, all of us should speak about it more with our friends, with our neighbors. Uh, just raise questions about the changing weather and what we all can do to um, reduce the, the threat of what might be a catastrophe in the decades to come. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies, and our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more if you're interested in making a podcast at DaviesContent.com. Thanks. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.